Well, it is my pleasure and privilege to be here in front of you and to be asked to deliver this lecture. And I hope that you will bear with my Italian accent. If you don't, I can easily speak Italian. <laughs> but I guess that it would be more of a problem for, for you. When I was a younger student, I remember that in grappling with uh, uh, the study of Roman Catholicism, I was of often asking the question, what, what is at stake with Roman Catholicism? What is the issue? What is the basic foundational problem with Catholicism? And I remember <coughs> one day finding a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who helped me to uh, begin to understand what was at stake then and what, what is at stake now. And here's a quote by Dr. Lloyd-Jones when he says that in Catholicism, it's not so much the denial of the truth, but rather an addition to the truth that becomes a deviation from it. Not so much a denial of the truth, per se, but an addition of, to the truth that becomes a departure from it. So I want to recognize my debt to uh, Lloyd-Jones and uh, his uh, um, insight on Catholicism as well as on many other topics. And uh, what we would like to do tonight is to look at the person, but more than the person, the theology of the present Pope. As uh, <clears throat> the principal was saying, he is a very public figure around the globe, is one of the most um, known and popular uh, characters that we have in today's religious world, and not only in the religious world. When Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio was elected as Pope Francis on March the 13th of 2013, the first question many Vatican experts asked was, what did he write? You know, once a Pope is elected, Vatican experts, they look to one another and say, who is he? What did he write? What books did he publish? The answer was simple and straightforward. None. Contrary to his predecessor, Benedict XIV, Joseph Ratzinger, who had been a major theologian in the post-Vatican II Roman Catholic Church, Bergoglio was not a scholar. He has never finished he, his postgraduate studies, although he spent a couple of years in Rome studying at the Gregorian Jesuit University. He spent a few years in Germany uh, studying Guardini, Romano Guardini, but never really uh, coming to the final stage and never getting a PhD or the equivalent of it. So, are we left completely without open windows onto his thought prior to the beginning of the papacy? 
because after becoming Pope, Pope Francis has begun to write. He has written two encyclicals, one, Lumen Fidei, The Light of the Faith, actually was written by Pope Ratzinger, and uh, when he resigned, he left this manuscript to his own successor, <laughs> and Pope Francis uh, wanted to promulgate this encyclical, but he recognized that it was not his own. It, was it had been written by uh, Pope Ratzinger. But the first encyclical entirely written by uh, Pope Francis is the recent ecological or ecological uh, encyclical Laudato Si, Be Praised, uh, taking a verse by Francis of Assisi. And uh, this encyclical deals with the ecological issues. And he has written also several apostolic exhortations or writings or letters and he, is, he speaks a lot and everything that he says is then published the same day after a few editing and few headaches by uh, the Roman Curia. So after becoming Pope we have lots of books coming out of uh, the Pope's mouth more than pen. But prior to this uh, there was a, a que an open question, um, but there is at least one hint that helps us to appreciate his theological worldview prior to becoming Pope. It is not <clears throat> the only element that defines his background, but still a significant one, and it will prove an intriguing entry point into the unfolding theological vision of his papacy. The only published work that Bergoglio had in his record was and is a small book published in Spanish and then translated into Italian covering the history of the Jesuit order. three lectures on the history of the Jesuits that Archbishop Bergoglio gave in Argentina, Buenos Aires, in 1985. And in this book, the only published work of the uh, Bishop Bergoglio prior to becoming Pope, we find the kind of harsh assessment that he gave of the Protestant Reformation in general and of John Calvin in particular. The appearance of the Pope after becoming Pope is that of a man with a smiling face, warm, friendly, appreciative, always wanting to stress commonalities and to lay aside differences. But this book, the only published work that he had published before becoming Pope, gives us a very different picture of the man. The lecture was republished in Spain in 2013 and then translated into Italian in a book form. In examining the history of the Jesuits, and he belongs to the Jesuit order, Bergoglio gives special attention to their interactions with the Reformation and their role in the Latin American missions. According to him, 
the inevitable consequences of the Reformation are the annihilation of man in his anxiety. These are his words. Resulting in atheism. The Reformation is to be blamed uh, of present-day atheism and a leap in the dark by a type of superhuman as envisaged by German philosopher Nietzsche. Both outcomes, according to this lecture, lead to or led to the death of God and a kind of paganism that manifests itself as Marxism and Nazism, all this originating from the Reformation. This is Archbishop Bergoglio. Bergoglio argues that the Reformation is the root of all the tragedies of the modern West, from secularization to the death of God, from totalitarian regimes to ideological suicides. There is nothing new under the sun. This disparaging and appalling view of the Reformation has been the common reading of modern European history by scores of counter-Reformation Catholic polemists until recent decades. Bergoglio did not invent it. He rather reaffirms it as if more thorough historical research and theological and cultural analysis never took place after the Council of Trent, even within the Catholic Church. What can we make of his friendly tones towards Protestant, Protestants if he really thinks that the Lutheran position and the Reformation as a whole are to be blamed for all the evils of Western civilization? There is more. <clears throat> Bergoglio makes a distinction between Luther, and he calls him the heretic, and John Calvin, who, according to him, is not only a heretic, but also a schismatic. The Lutheran heresy in this book is defined as a good idea gone foolish. But Calvin is even worse, because according to Bergoglio, he tore apart man, society, and the church. Calvin split reason from the heart, thus producing what he calls and defines the Calvinist squalor. In society, Calvin pitted the bourgeois against the other working classes, thus becoming the father of liberalism. The worst schism happened in the church, however. There Calvin, quote, beheaded the people of God from being united with the father, capital F. He beheaded the people of God from its patron saints. He also beheaded them from the mass, that is, the mediation of the really present Christ. In summary, Calvin was an executioner that destroyed man, poisoned society, and ruined the church. This is what Archbishop Bergoglio argued for in 1985, in his only written book published, ever published. The more Pope Francis speaks, the clearer his theology becomes. 
He has always said that the traditional dogmas and the catechism of the church are in the background of what he affirms and that nothing of substance changes. This is true only in part. Different Roman Catholic interpreters have always played with the task of putting different accents on the same sheet music. And Francis is deliberately putting his preferred accent on another key dogma. Talking to Jesuit journalists from across the world uh, on September the 19th, 2013, Pope Francis said many things and these comments attracted lots of positive reviews. Here we will focus on this particular one. Here, here is what Pope Francis said. I have, quote, I have a dogmatic certainty. I have a dogmatic certainty. God is in every person's life. God is in everyone's life. Even if the life of a person has been as a disaster, even if it, if it is destroyed by vices, drugs, or anything else, God is in this person's life. You can, you must try to seek God in every human life. Although the life of a person is a land full of thorns and weeds, there is always a space in which the good seed can grow. This Pope is not someone who likes to use dogmatic language, at least on the surface. Yet here he is using the strongest language possible. He really wants to mean what he's saying. God is, is in everyone's life. This unqualified statement raises questions about what the Pope thinks of the nature of sin in human life and the reality that we all fall short of God because of our sin. While teaching that those who believe in Christ shall be saved, the Bible is clear in saying that humans universally are sinners and therefore enemies of God and under his judgment. The Pope, instead, wants to affirm the dogma that God is present because there is always some residual good in man. One further comment by Pope Francis reinforces his dogmatic view on man's inherent openness to God's presence and therefore his fundamental goodness. Responding to the editor of the Italian newspaper La Repubblica, he wrote the following. You, says the Pope, or writes the Pope, you ask me if the God of Christians forgives one who doesn't believe and doesn't seek the faith. Premise that the mercy of God has no limits if one turns to him with a sincere and contrite heart. The question for one who doesn't believe in God lies in obeying one's conscience. Sin, also for those who don't have faith, exists when one goes against one's own conscience. To listen to and to obey it means, in fact, to decide in, in face of what is perceived as good or evil. To put it simply, obey one's own conscience is what God will take account of 
in granting forgiveness. Notice that the Pope here is not speaking of those who have never heard the gospel, but he is speaking of those who don't believe, knowing what they are doing. Apparently, to go against one's own conscience counts more than going against God's revelation. Although the Bible teaches that there is no excuse before God's righteous judgment, Francis here says that the conscience is the final judge to whom God will submit himself. The human conscience is the determinative factor for God's forgiveness. These two statements, God is in every person and Obeying one's own conscience is what really matters, are thus part of a coherent dogma of human goodness and the consequential hope for universal salvation. If we can put Francis's theology in a nutshell, these two parameters, God is in every person and one's own conscience is what really matters these are the two pillars of his own theological vision. What is important to observe is not so much the details of each statement, but rather the general theological vision that lies at its core. Traditionally, Roman Catholicism has worked within the nature-grace scheme, largely dependent on the Thomistic tradition. According to this theological vision, nature, although partially flawed by sin, is elevated by grace to its supernatural end. And the church, with its, with its sacramental system, is the way in which grace effects that elevation. Moreover, in the 20th century, this scheme, nature and grace scheme, was significantly modified and received an important endorsement at Vatican II. Whereas the old scheme implied that grace needed to be added to nature, on top of nature, this new version claims that grace is already part of nature and works not as something extrinsic coming from outside, but as something intrinsic to nature. Grace is therefore inherent to nature, and through the sacramental system of the Church, it unfolds itself more and more. One advocate of this grace-within-nature framework was Karl Rahner, himself a Jesuit like Pope Francis. His view of the anonymous Christian stated that each human being is already inherently graced and therefore a Christian, even though he is not aware of it or does not want to be such. While not using this Ranarian language, Pope Francis works within a similar dogmatic framework. God is in every person, and one's own conscience is the final referee or arbiter or reference point. 
together with the dogmatic certainty about human conscience, mission is another defining word used by Pope Francis. He wrote the apostolic letter titled The Joy of the Gospel, Evangelii Gaudium, The Joy of the Gospel, the second magisterial document of his pontificate. And here, uh, Pope Francis argues for the necessity for his church to recapture the missionary outlook and mindset in order to move forward and outward, not becoming an introverted church, but wanting to be an extrovert, missional type of church. The word joy, the joy of the gospel, is repeated 59 times and is the common theme of the document. The Pope wants to give a joyful flavor to mission. The gospel is also part of the title, the joy of the gospel, but has a lesser role in the document. The focus is on the joy, less on the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is summarized in this way. And these are Pope Francis's words. The gospel is the beauty of the saving love of God made manifest in Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead. End of quote. In this apparently evangelical definition of the gospel, something is missing. While the objective good news of God is rightly related to the narrative of Jesus Christ, the subjective part of it, that is, personal faith and repentance from one's own sin, is omitted. The tragedy of being lost without Jesus Christ is also downplayed. For this reason, nowhere in the document are unrepentant unbelievers called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Non-Catholic Christians are already united in baptism. That is what the document says. The Jews don't need to convert. That is another thing that the document says. And with believing Muslims, the way forward is dialogue. Because, quote, together with us, they adore the one and merciful God. End of quote. Other non-Christians are in the document defined as already justified by the grace of God. Justified by the grace of God. And are associated to the Paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. That's part of the quote. The gospel then appears not to be a message of salvation from God's judgment but instead a vehicle to access a fuller measure of a salvation that is already given to all mankind. At different levels, with various degrees, but because God is in everyone's life and because the final 
reference point is one's own conscience, there are various ways in which people can be Christ already Christian. According to Francis, therefore, mission, mission is the joyful will willingness to extend the fullness of grace to a world that is already under grace. You see, the word is the same. Mission. And the reference to the gospel is the same. The word gospel. But what it means is very different from a biblical, evangelical understanding of mission and the gospel. What has been the Francis effect on the church? The simplest answer is that he is envisaging a different kind of Catholicity. Both his insistence on the human conscience and mission stem out of his Catholicity. In the Roman Catholic understanding, Catholicity has to do simultaneously with unity and totality. The basic premise is that multiplicity, diversity should be brought into unity. And the church, the Catholic Church, is seen as an expression, a guarantor and a promoter of true unity between God and humanity and within humanity itself. In Vatican II terms, the church is defined as the sacrament of unity. That is, representing the unity of mankind and being the place where the unity between mankind and God is manifested and can be found. As long as the institutional structure that preserves this unity remains intact, everything can and must find its home somewhere within its realm. The Catholic mindset is therefore characterized by an, overall, uh, by an attitude of overall openness without losing touch with its Roman center. It is inherently dynamic and comprehensive, capable of holding together doctrines, ideas, and practices that in other Christian traditions are thought of as being mutually exclusive. By way of its inclusive both-and, both-and approach, in the Catholic system, two apparently contradicting elements can be reconciled into a synthesis that entails both. In principle, the system is wide enough to welcome everyone, everything and everyone. The defining term is not the word of God written, scripture alone but the Roman Church itself. From a Catholic point of view, then, affirming something does not necessarily mean denying something else, but it means enlarging one's own perspective of the whole truth. Catholicity allows doctrinal development without a radical breach from the past and also allows different kinds of Catholicity to coexist. Each Pope has his own Catholicity project. John Paul II pushed for the Church 
to become a global player, thus expanding geographical Catholicity and its profile with the media. That was the kind of Catholicity that John Paul II wanted to promote, allowing the church to recapture center stage in the global scene. Benedict XVI tried to define Catholicity in terms of its adherence to universal reason, thus trying to reconnect the chasm between faith and reason that the Western Enlightenment had introduced. John Paul II wanted to promote a global Catholicity. Pope Benedict wanted to promote the Catholicity of faith and reason. These Catholicity projects are not mutually exclusive, but they all contribute to the overall dynamic of the Roman Catholic Church. After more than three years of his pontificate, it is becoming apparent what kind of Catholicity Francis has in mind. He wants to build on John Paul II's global Catholicity while shifting emphasis from John Paul II's doctrinal rigidity to more inclusive patterns. So he wants to be a global pope. Actually, he, he defines himself as being someone who comes from the periphery of the world, someone who comes from the ends of the world. So he wants to emphasize this global aspect of Catholicity, but without the doctrinal rigidity of Pope John Paul II. In fact, Pope Francis has very few words to say about doctrine and uh, boundaries, doctrinal boundaries. He, pay lips, he pays lip service to Ratzinger, Ratzinger's rational Catholicity, but wants to move the agenda from Western ideological battles to human social issues that find appeal across the global spectrum. If Ratzinger wanted to mark the difference between the church and the world, Francis tries to make them overlap. In shaping the new Catholicity, it seems closer to the pastoral tone of John XXIII, who was canonized in 2014, and he was, Pope Francis canonized uh, John XXIII. So there is continuity and development. He takes something from John Paul II, he takes something from Pope Ratzinger, redefines these things according to his own Catholicity project, and then it refers it back to John XXIII pastoral concerns, away from doctrinal concerns, and instead addressing this attempt to be inclusive. Francis has little time for non-negotiable truths and gives more attention to the variety of people's consciences. He is more interested in warmth than light, in empathy than judgment. He focuses on attitude rather than identity and on embracing rather than teaching. He underlines the relational 
over the doctrinal. For him, proximity is more important than integrity. Belonging together has priority over believing differently. Of course, all these marks are not pitted against each other, but their relationship is worked out within a new balance whereby the first one determines the, the overall orientation. Roman Catholicity works this way, never abandoning the past, always enlarging the synthesis by putting the new elements around the Roman center. Francis called this Catholicity mission. And this word lies at the heart of his theological vision. The word mission is familiar and intriguing for Bible-believing Christians. Yet, one needs to understand what he means by it beyond what it appears to mean on the surface. At the end of this month, on the uh, 31st of October, Pope Francis will be part of an ecumenical world gathering meeting in Lund, Sweden, on Reformation Day. And there, together with the ecumenical leaders, he will declare that the Reformation is over. The Jesuit order was founded to fight against the spreading of the Reformation. Five centuries after, one Jesuit Pope will finally pronounce that according to him and his church, the Jesuit mission has finally succeeded. This is the big challenge that Pope Francis is, is uh, giving us. And uh, I hope that a strong affirmation of the gospel will also be heard after that announcement will be made. Thank you.